be read 12 through 20. James 5, beginning at verse 12. But above all, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. But let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth for a space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and convert one, convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error's way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Trust our Lord to bless the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we approach this, your word, with love and care, for we understand what it offers us, and we entrust its understanding to your spirit, trusting that the spirit will guide your speaker today to bring forth truth. Our hearts, Lord, are hearts that are in need of spiritual strengthening, and this word provides it. It is uh, that which is nourishment to the soul and understanding to our lives. Thank you again for it, for our time together around it. In Christ's name, amen. Last or a week ago, Thursday or Wednesday was, we drove down to um, Greenville, Tennessee for our church synod. And um, it's a little bit past Bristol. I'm pretty much familiar with there been down 81 a number of times, so I knew it, but I kept my GPS on all the time. It's just one of those things that tells me when the police radar are up there, and, but it also tells me, you know, if there's an accident and I have to get off the way and so forth. So even though I knew the route, I pretty much relied upon it as necessary. You know, as we go to God's Word, um, I recommend that we keep it before us. The ear gate is one and the eye gate is the other of an avenue to be able to digest what's before us. You may be familiar in listening, but as we go through these passages at any time, but especially today, we go to verse to verse. It's okay to listen, but it's also good to be able to rehearse it with your eyes and be able to see it in front of you as we read. As we move through this chapter of James, we begin today in verse 12 with kind of, I don't want to say an unusual verse, but it's a verse that doesn't seem to fit in its place. 
and a number of commentators had mentioned it. Again, he says, But of all, all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Again, it's a profitable verse. And I think as we've seen going through this letter, that verses are often connected. But this verse, 12, doesn't necessarily fit with the previous topic of the previous section, and it doesn't necessarily fit with the topic of the following section. And a lot of commentators say, we're confused, head-scratching. And some will try and link it in, but I don't necessarily hold to those. It could be that Pastor James heard of something, and he's nearing the end of the letter, and he's got a lot of things to fill in, and it could be one of these things, you know, in dealing with a topic, and he tries to answer the questions, bring clarification to the flock. I know that there are some people today who use this verse kind of out of context, out of place, uh, when hearing somebody say kind of a, a nasty word. You know, say, hey, listen to me, don't use those dirty words here. Don't use that foul language, because the Bible says, do not swear, swear not. Well, that's not really, he's not talking about profanity. He's not talking about curse words, but he's talking about what? Oaths, oaths. And this has nothing to do with going to a court and putting your hand on the Bible and swearing that you're going to tell the truth. But it was a common practice of the people of the day. Swear not neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. An oath was a promise to do something or not to do something in the understanding that God was a witness and he would be the one to judge your honesty in saying that. Understood. Well, the Jews have a practice, and they still would do, never to say the name of Jehovah or Elohim. You know, We just would do, skip it. And they would often use a substitute word, Adonai, but nevertheless, they would substitute, even in this particular case, um, uh, another type of oath squaring. For example, um, I swear by my head if what I am telling you is not true. Now, swearing by my head, in other words, if I lose my head, you know, that, that can happen. In other words, lose my life. I swear by my head, or I swear by the temple, or I swear by this, or by this, or by this, you know. And uh, I've heard people even say, I swear by my mother's grave, you know, and honest, this is honest, you know. So Jesus in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 5, and James here comes along and says simply, tell the truth. Let your yea be yea and your name be nay. You don't have to go into all of this other stuff because you are to speak the truth in all times. You are to present such a truth. And so when you say yes, or when you say no, let that be sufficient. And I think it bodes well for the Christian in all of life that we live a sincere life. What comes out of our mouth should speak truth at all times, all situations. Now, we begin with verse 13 here, and it's the first mention of prayer. And you'll notice in these verses ahead, prayer is spoken of again and again. And as we came in late for Sunday school, I heard a lot of prayer talk, you know, and God understands this. I really appreciate his sense of humor with us, you know. 
13a, the beginning of it, he says, any among you afflicted, let him pray. Well, if you're uh, not a stranger to the book of James, you know affliction was a very part of this book. Chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse, various, assorted trials and temptations, you know, afflictions. And we went all through that, why he's talking about count it all joy. Um, But it's a, a matter of reality. Do you remember when Paul and Silas were in jail in Philippi? Shackled up in there with all the other prisoners. And what were they doing? They were praying and they were singing praise to God. You know, there was joy within their hearts. Well, you know, here's a situation where it was opposite. He said, what do we do when we have afflictions? Do we worry? Do we seek revenge? Do we seek to be able to get back? No, he says, don't do that. Pray. And then he adds to that the logical aspect. If any marry, in other words, cheerful, joyous heart, then sing. And again, that's what Paul and Silas were doing. In their affliction, in their times of troubles, they had, because the Lord Jesus Christ ruled and reigned in their heart, they had that joy of Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. My grandma lived with us. They had three children, my mom and her sister and brother, and she would spend a third of the year in each of the houses that go around so she didn't overstay her welcome. But I remember grandma living in there. She had a bedroom on the first floor, and I'd go by and I'd hear humming hymns. You know, it was just a very part of her nature, a very part of her character. There was a joy in her life. And that's how what the Apostle Paul is, is uh, uh, talking about, singing and making melody in your hearts. Verse 14, any, any sick among you, let him call the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. The elders of the church are called to pray upon that person who is bedridden. He's physically exhausted. Uh, the word sick here in verse 15 means worn out, exhausted. Just Boom, beat up by whatever this particular illness is. They're not to call upon the elders if he got a cold or a little stomach flu or having trouble with a date or something like that. This is a serious issue. This is something that's very profoundly difficult. The elders are to pray. And again, remember in verse 13, if an affliction, pray. But here's a case where he's saying this is a, a serious case. And they call upon the elders to come anointing this person in the name of the Lord. Uh, some refer to oil here as, as a medicinal, and I had a teacher back at Shelton College who, who really pointed out, he says, this is medicine. Uh, this isn't just anointing oil, but uh, others you know, you can go either way, kind of like, a, uh, what do they call it, um, essential oil. Yeah, um, essential oil. But uh, nevertheless, it's the idea that they have come to present the Lord unto him. There was a commentator who wrote, as the elders pray, they are to anoint the sick in order to symbolize that the person is being set apart 
for God's special attention and care. Throughout the scriptures, uh, any time prayer was offered or anointing oil was done, it was to be showing a setting aside of something for a special purpose. Uh, Psalm 133, a little short psalm, talks about Aaron, uh, anointed, and the oil goes upon his head and it flows down to his beard all the way down to the bottom of his garments. And he's to walk about the camp. Well, the oil was very fragrant. And they had to see that Aaron was set aside as they could smell this beautiful oil. Aaron was set aside for a special purpose by God. And so even in this particular case, it was common in Scripture. As they prayed and anointed this person, it was recognized that the power was not in the oil. It's not in the words of the, those praying. It wasn't even in uh, the, the actual uh, prayer itself for the elders, but the actual power was in God. God was the source of it all. God was the one who was doing the work, and it was their confidence in him that they were anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this would be accomplished. Remember our response of reading, and it worked out perfect that we even sang it within the Psalms there. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. So the psalmist writes, understanding the source of healing. The source comes from God, and this faithful service that they were providing was that direction. There are a number of other scriptures in the Old and New Testament that talk about a direct correlation between prayer and healing. Here's one from Isaiah, chapter 38. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Here's the king, nearing the end of his reign, supposedly, sick unto death. Uh, Isaiah comes to him, and apparently Isaiah was uh, even a relative of Hezekiah. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Powerful words to be heard. And yet it says, Then Hezekiah turned his face towards the wall, and he prayed unto the Lord. A little bit later on, Speaking of the Lord, he says, I have heard thy prayer, and I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days 15 years. So as the death sentence came, he's sick, he's down, and he's out, and he says, get your house in order, see that everything is is all prepared. And he says, I'm not taking that. And he turns his face to the wall, and he said, I'm not going to be disturbed by anything. And he prays unto the Lord with the confidence that only God can be the one to do it. He's anchored in that, and God gave him another 15 years. Out of Hezekiah's weakness and out of the reality of his situation, he prayed with confidence. And out of mercy and out of grace, God, the sovereign God, gives him another 15 years. Our text continues, verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Uh, the prayer of faith, in other words, prayer offered in confidence that God is the one to do it, and the Lord shall raise him up. Again, this person is bedridden. He's worn out. He's exhausted. Not able to get up, do anything. And no doubt that kept him from the fellowship. You know, this is a situation that this guy's at home. 
uh, he's staying with somebody and he can't even come and gather with all of the other believers for worship. So then the Lord can indeed bring this person back to his feet. He says, shall save the sick. Not talking about a spiritual thing, but raise this man up to his feet once again. Heal him as it's necessary. Now, I must admit that James isn't ruling out medical attention here. And I think of Luke, Dr. Luke, um, a man who was a man of great faith and yet used his ministry in medicine to be able to be of service to the Lord. But he is saying here that if it's God's will to restore to strength and health and healing, it will be done by God and God will praise, be praised for that which has been accomplished. But then the verse adds, and if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Could very well be that this man's illness, the reason he's down and out and in his bed, is because of sin. It's not unusual in our day to find such a situation. And we're not pointing the finger, the reason you're sick is because of this, like, like Job's friends. But he says, if this particular situation is there, it's true. Maybe it was backsliding just wandering away from the Lord. And God was using the occasion where he was down and out on his back to be able to say, you need to confess this. You know, some of my greatest, most intimate moments with the Lord is when I'm flat on my back. You know, uh, here's the situation, Lord, what do you want? I can't do anything. I just, you know, I'm, I'm out. Speak to me about this. Times of soul searching. Lord, what are you telling me? Verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. How much is, how important is, is confessing uh, when he speaks of sin here, admitting wrong? How important is that? You know, we talk about counseling, pastoral counseling to people. That's one of the key instances in life to be able to say there is sin here. There are things that have to be addressed. Obviously, to know in my own heart that I've done wrong, that I've sinned is important. Then I also have to understand that I've sinned against a holy God, vertical, but I've also sinned horizontally against somebody or others in plural, likewise. I think in practice, these things are not easy to sincerely see that I've done wrong and to admit it, to confess it, is humbling. Because I have to show myself that I'm not really what I thought I was or present myself as I thought I was. It's truth. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, does that ring a bell to anybody? Lutheran pastor, uh, died under the Nazis, spoke powerfully about the reality of what was coming, but the gospel was always before him. Bonhoeffer wrote, Confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It cuts a man down. It's a dreadful blow to pride to stand there before a brother. And a sinner is an ignominy that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, The old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of his brother. That's the reality of sin. We sin against a brother or sister in Christ. 
we have to be able to say, wait a minute, I did wrong. And to be able to come before that brother and confess it and say, I did it, is hard. It's powerful. It's humiliating. The truth of the matter is that it is much more than simply acknowledging sin in my life. Kids will do that. You know, they get caught. Oh, yeah, I did wrong. Sorry. You know, but it's still bound within them because there's not an ideal or there's not a desire for repentance. Repentance is a 180 degree turn from where I was going. In that action, or in that thought, or in that engagement, I'm going in this way, and and I see that I've done wrong, and I need to confess it. But with confession comes the idea that I have to repent. In other words, 180 degrees from the direction that I was going. When you think about it, in practice, we often take the path of confessing the presence of sin rather than dealing with it. And often we find it easier confessing to a God who we don't see. Oh, Lord, I've done wrong, you know, but he's not there. Sometimes it just soothes my conscience. But it's much harder harder to confess wrongdoing to those we see on a daily basis. 1 John 4.20, if a man say, I love God, but hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So when it comes time for confession, yes, Lord, I confess to you, but I don't see you. I think it will be different the day we come and we stand before the Lord, the great judge. But before our fellow man, it's more difficult. With that confession, one to another, James speaks about here, comes a willing heart to pray one for another. Once that barrier of sin that has been broken down, there's a willingness from the heart to be able to say, I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. And when it's done, there's healing and restoration at the door. And that healing may not necessarily be as it was asked about or thought about, but it is healing nonetheless. 16, the second half of the verse And this part of the verse is oftentimes just preached on by itself. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, James writes. But what does that mean? You know, it sounds super verse. But he gives an example of this very thing. Old Testament folks, as these Jewish readers were, no doubt understood the case of this. Verse 17, Elias, which is the prophet Elijah, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. In other words, he wasn't a superhuman being. He understands life and death and everything else in relationships. And he prayed earnestly, earnestly, that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. This was because of God's judgment, because of Ahab and Jezebel. God says, we're going to deal with you because of the actions you've done for my people. So let's do this. And he prayed again. And the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. What is effectual, fervent prayer? What is effectual, fervent prayer? I found a paraphrase that wrote it. The forceful, earnest, heartfelt prayer of a righteous man will accomplish much. Forceful and earnest. 
In other words, we have access to the throne of grace. We can come to God through Jesus Christ and be able to speak to him boldly. It's forceful, and I'm not there screaming at him, but I understand who my God is, and I have confidence that I can come to him. But it's from my heart, because it's that which is I'm dealing with. Effectual fervent prayer. I think you understand yourself what they are. And when that's accomplished perfectly, divine decrees is provided. God answers. Not always an answer that we'll accept or understand, but it's his answer and according to the best ways possible. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, uh, 1700s, tells us what this kind of prayer is not. Cold prayers, meaning not effectual fervent prayers. Cold prayers are as arrows without heads, swords without edges, birds without wings. They pierce not, They cut not, they fly not to heaven. Cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. You know the difference. You know the difference between such. We've been in those situations. You pray, oh, oh, me, I gotta pray, you know, or a situation, oh, you know, let's get this done and and, uh, prayer. But it's bound within my heart. These are the things that I'm coming to, whether it's a matter of thanksgiving or a petition or desire that I pour out to the Lord. I'm speaking to him. It's not a matter of word choice because we can all memorize some very pious lines. We can also memorize scripture verses and just quote them as they may be. But they are words from the heart recognizing that we are addressing the only sovereign of the universe and we have an audience with him by grace. When we were last years in the Philippines, um, it was election time and Jeff became very enamored with the idea of candidates driving around and, and just shaking hands and kissing babies. You know, that was just what everybody did. And so he started collecting posters. And man, he just got, we had a whole box of posters and, and signatures and other stuff like that. And as time went on, we from the Philippines, we were on our way home, we had three weeks in Singapore. Well, it was their special holiday, and there was somebody in the one Singapore church, he said, you want to meet the president of Singapore? Yeah, you know, and so he got there, and he got a signature from him and all these other posters and everything like that. And, and it was a matter of, we tell them, you know, this is just not somebody, you're, you're going to be meeting Somebody special. Be prepared. Prepare yourself. You don't understand this isn't just somebody off the street, but these are special people. And as we come to God in prayer, we speak from our hearts, but we recognize who it is that we are speaking to. We recognize the one to whom we are coming by faith, recognizing that he will answer in the best way. I'm going to leave verses 19 and 20 for the next time we get together. I trust that's not a mistake. But I want to go back to verse 13, the beginning of that verse. Any among you afflicted, let him pray. As much as we know each other, I think in all sincerity, we can honestly say that we are all burdened. You know, we like to recognize some things that we are burdened about or burdened with. But I think we all are. 
Other translations say, any among you suffering? Are any among you suffering hardships? Are any of you in trouble? Are any among you in trouble? The word afflicted is fairly broad, used throughout the Old New Testament. It's the idea of suffering illness and loss and persecution and grief and disappointment. And from that comes the affliction. Because of those very issues, affliction then brings us to the place of some lesser or greater degree. It affects how we sleep. It affects our health. It affects our relationship with others, our ability to accomplish our work. Your temperament, your expression of all kinds of emotions, feelings of depression and brokenness and bitterness and loss, it all, all spills, and all depending upon the severity or the burden of the affliction that we are under at that moment. What are your afflictions today? This is in confession time. <laughs> you know, there are times when Wednesday, you list the prayer and go through, and sometimes those prayers will be repeated, and you say, those are some of the obvious afflictions. And sometimes we speak about them, and sometimes we don't. I don't want to share it. It's kind of embarrassing. What are your afflictions? Some are hidden. Some are obvious. I can name some of yours right now, and you could probably name some of mine if we really got... Down to digging it. Millie, you're not to be saying anything. They end up in situations where, as they would have their course, end up in arguments and divorces and fights and splits and all types of other things because that's the intent of the affliction. What are you doing about it? James says to Pray, right? There's a lady at another church that we go to, and she always comes up at the end of the service, and she says, Pastor, will you pray for this? You know, will you pray for this? I says, have you prayed about it? Well, yeah, but but you're the pastor. Your prayers are, you know, yeah, you know, that's the idea. And sometimes we categorize all of those things, and we put them into the place, who's going to hear me? Him? Is God going to listen to me? He says, pray. He doesn't say, take two aspirin and see me in the morning. The reality of any afflicted, and it's a kind of a toss-out, you know, but obviously afflictions are everywhere. Too often prayer is not our first response in any affliction. We try and figure it out by ourselves. I can think this one through. Okay? I can work it out. We use our skills, our financial resources. We even turn to friends. What do I do? I'll call so-and-so. They'll give me an answer. You know. None of that helps. We finally may get around to praying. Psalm 107.6 and they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from out of their distress. Children of Israel, they cried unto him. Why? Because there was nothing else. You know, 107.13. And they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distress. 
107.28. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distress. Israel, when are you going to wake up? And the whole psalm is just saying, you are in trouble. And they cried, and God delivered them and saved them. And it's a psalm that had to be repeated and repeated at various occasions throughout Israel's spiritual history. Why? Because of the tendency of us to do the very same thing. So why are we so hesitant to pray? Why? Why does it become something that we set aside? How has how our, in answer to my current affliction, and I've tried and I've tried, how has that been, Keith? How has that worked out? Well, it hasn't. <laughs> you know, I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this. You know, it hasn't worked out. And we find ourselves still in difficult straits. Following an exam, a bank of tests, the doctor comes to you and he says, you've got this situation, and it's serious. But I have some medication for you. And you agree. If what you understand, this medication is going to help you, is going to provide for you a, a restoration to health and strength. So you go to the pharmacy and you pick it up and you go through the whole list with the pharmacist. He says, yeah, this is good stuff. And you go home And you take the the medication and you put it in your nightstand and it sits there. And you don't touch it. We have access, not to a medication, but to a sovereign God. Any of you afflicted? Let's name it. But why do we not take the medication? Why do we avoid entering into prayer? Maybe we're just unfamiliar with it. Maybe we, well, I did it. I I gave a couple minutes in the morning, and that should be good. You read the characters of Scripture, and you read their lives and all of the situations they found themselves in. They found out it was most necessary to do it on a constant basis. Charles Spurgeon writes, It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. The worst affliction for the Christian is to be able to say, God cannot help. We say, well, that's not true. He can help. Well, why don't we go and knock on the door? Why do we continue to stay with this attitude or this burden or this grievance or whatever and not deal with it with him? There's no one else who can handle it. There's no one else that can change a heart or heal a body or mend this or bring this about. And it always doesn't have to be in the way that I think, my sovereign brain, you know, the way I think it ought to be done. He knows best. He knows best. Our closing hymn today is one that when it was written, it was kind of poo-pooed, not necessarily a serious hymn, one that was um, uh, thought upon rather lightly. But then later on it gained popularity. Uh, What a friend we have in Jesus. And when we used to do nursing home services, that was always, they'd always raise their hand, you know, we want that to be sung and so forth. And and you kind of get, oh, we're going to sing that again, you know. But listen to the words. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs 
to bear. What a privilege to carry everything, everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We forfeit peace. I give it up. I just as soon be troubled and headached and and burdened and sick and whatever because I don't take it to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. There's not one of us here that doesn't have a trial and a tribulation. Can we find a friend so faithful who with all, will our, all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. <laughs> yeah, but nobody knows what I'm going through. Uh, he does. You know. He is like unto us in every fashion, suffered every form of affliction that we do, And yet he perfectly went through it without sinning. So you can't go and say, you don't know how I feel. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand my situation. You don't understand this horizontal cesspool that I'm living in. He says, I know it. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? (laughs) The big back, Pilgrim's Progress. You ever read that? You know, even in the movie, you know, here's... Here's a Christian or pilgrim first, and he's got this huge backpack full of just, ah, and he's carrying it, not until he comes to the cross and then the burden falls off. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. Yeah, we're going to disappoint each other. We're going to step on toes. We're going, to, we're going to pinch this. We're going to do this. You know, and that's understood. If, if you think that this, you know, the the group of of believers or people here on this earth will meet my needs, you know, the longer you live, you recognize that doesn't happen. But my Jesus does. He's there always as a faithful friend to hear. So why not access him? Why not knock on his door? You wake up, you know, Lord, what it is? I had a couple days there, and it was 3 o'clock. I said, why am I awake at 3 o'clock, you know? So I went back to sleep, don't worry. But I had to ask myself, Lord, are you wanting me to, you know, deal with this or whatever? You know, access it, access it. Any afflicted, you give a hearty amen, then pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you, as uh, James writes about a situation f- with two people, with people that he's very familiar with, and they were your children. And he writes to them of the heart relationship that uh, the, they are to have with you and the access that they can gain any time of the day or night that your presence is always there, that you can be uh, heard no matter where the location or what the time, that as they pour their hearts out to you, uh, you know their situation best, but you desire for them to come. You plead for them to come. You hunger for them to come to you. And so our Jesus has made this possible by his work on the cross, his 
active in his passive obedience uh, to that work. Uh, Today, Father, your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is on your right hand, and he pleads for us. He has access to your throne. We're we're not worthy. We can't do it on our own. We, We have no way of approaching you, but Jesus does. And Lord, cause us to find sweetness in prayer. Cause us to find our closet time. Cause us to be able to speak with you throughout the day as we seek your will, as we seek your guidance, as we look for relief, as we look for forgiveness. Thank you for being there. In Jesus' name, amen.